And I want to welcome all of you here. I am now here coming to you live from the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church on the second floor. I want to welcome all of you, whether you're on the third floor, second floor, first floor, or watching remotely. I want to welcome you to worship. It's uh, sort of an interesting timing as we walk into what is theoretically spring break for many people. For many people, it's like spring break. We gave that up for Lent. That's not a thing anymore because of what's been going on over the last year or so. It was about a year ago this month when things began to change markedly and dramatically in our nation, in the world on the whole. A whole lot of uh, disruption and interruption of our convenience and our contours began to take effect. And it really understandably upset a whole lot of people, both in and out of the church. We began to see people who were believers, people who were not believers, really beginning to be undone as there was this bombardment of division, division, division. And I began to see a whole lot of sweet saints and also struggling sinners who were not able to quite make sense of what's going on. And so, as is often the case, our mass media, our culture and society and context decided to do the best they could to address and resolve the ills and the, and the, the, the needs that were there. And so they took to the airwaves and virtually every message that we were bombarded with over the last several months has been all about, listen, we can, we can rise above this. There's been this wonderful eh, call to humanism that sort of centers on the individual where if we all just finally get along, we're going to be okay. We all need to just agree with one another, and those that don't agree are going to die off one day anyway. It's really the appalling sort of gross message that is relentlessly beamed at us, and the refrain that keeps coming through in marketing campaign after marketing campaign, pop song after pop song, is, you do you. Now, I've mentioned this before many times in sermons and different rants, but it just gets all over me because it is one of the most distinctly unbiblical refrains that a culture can and has ever produced. You do you. Now, that sort of thinking might feel good and it might sort of unleash this sense of individuality and that there's no such thing as normal. Well, I understand where that's born, but it's absolutely destructive and catastrophic in the context of a church. In fact, one of my heroes in the faith, Bruce Waltke, puts it this way. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And I think we're starting to see that sort of mentality normalized, elevated, and even celebrated. I've said this before, I want to say it again. I think one of the greatest struggles or blights on the late 20th century, the early 21st century, is what sociologists are calling atomism. A-T-O-M, atomism, where everyone just sort of assumes that they are an individual particle sort of just floating through the ether of the cosmos and they have no ultimate purpose or direction. And we know psychologically that clinging to a hope that is abstract and vague is devastating. You're not the kind of creature that was designed for that. You must have hope in something very specific, concrete, and tangible. To merely hope in the abstract will absolutely cause your soul to implode. So what are we supposed to do in this time of atomism? 
What are we supposed to do when the culture reminds us again and again and again that you do you? Well, that's actually going to prepare us for our big idea. It comes perfectly and precisely on time. It's in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 4, and our big idea goes like this. You do us. It's the worst, like, tennis shoe commercial ever. I really couldn't care less. You do us. When I see week on week, and I'm not, I'm not complaining, I'm not griping, I'm not, but week on week, there is a steady increase of the conversations I get to have with people in this community, in this church, in this campus, who are mad as something, and they're not going to take it anymore. They're just mad. And so what they've decided to do oftentimes is just get mad at one another. And so there is this frustratingly increasing division between God's people that is actually enforcing this satanic atomism that says, listen, those people that you identify with, they're causing you problems. They don't get you. They're trying to change you. You need to be an individual off by yourself. And yet, isn't it interesting that the greatest, like, rallying cry of this generation is community, community, community. But you cannot have authentic community and it also espouse atomism. So, we're going to turn the corner, and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We've been in the book of Ephesians uh, this entire calendar year, essentially. And this morning, we make a very significant pivot. Now, let me tell you how this is going to go. I'm going to read the first six verses, and then I'm going to start over and unpack all the way through the middle of the chapter. So we're going to cover some ground relatively efficiently. At least that's what the preacher says. Buckle up. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But, and then we'll hold there for a moment. Let me go back and unpack very briefly here, verses one through six. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. If someone whose life is absolutely awesome tells you that you need to just kind of buck up and suffer well, you might just punch him in the throat, right? That's not what Paul's doing. He's not appealing to his apostolic office. He's saying, hey, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I was baptized in Antioch. I spent 14, maybe 17 years out in the deserts of Arabia. I was sitting making tents for my daddy in Tarsus when Barnabas came to get me. I started doing these missionary journeys. I got stoned, I got flogged, I got whipped, I got probably killed in Iconium. And now I'm in jail in Rome. This isn't how it's supposed to go. And I'm urging you, I'm beseeching you, Ephesians, in view of all that I've told you to walk worthy. Now, what Paul's doing is wonderfully following the pattern of all Scripture. We get three chapters of doctrine before we ever get a single exhortation to do. We get all matter of belief before we get to any behavior. We get all sorts of attitude before we get any sort of action. In other words, super important, our first point of implication and application is here in line. The imperative is always, sorry, the indicative is always followed by the imperative. The imperative is always going to follow, sorry, the indicative is always going to follow, I'm going to say it right at some point, the imperative always follows the indicative. I know, I'm upset too. 
The imperative always follows the indicative. Who God is, what God has done, and therefore, what is the natural overflow and outworking of what God has done? It's the same thing as in the book of Romans. 11 chapters of doctrine before we get a single directive. Just as the same here in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, I'm a prisoner, and I'm urging you... And the language that he uses here is so thick and rich, we could spend weeks on it. We're not going to. I'm a prisoner for the Lord, not of Nero, not of Rome, not of anybody else. This is God's doing. In other words, don't ever interpret God through your circumstances. I am a prisoner of the Lord. It might not seem the way we think things should go. God's economy and my economy are not the same, praise God. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I urge you, who am doing this myself, not on the office of apostle, but because of look at my present circumstance, therefore I have the right and the empathetic posture to urge you to walk in a manner. Now, when he says walk, we clearly understand, because we've probably been to a church or a Bible study or a life group or a VBS or something, that he doesn't necessarily mean merely one foot in front of the other. But he doesn't just mean lifestyle either. There's something deeper in Greek here. This is parapateo. Don't worry about the Greeky geeky. This is a very specific category that Paul's referencing. In ancient Greece, you had Socrates, and then you had Plato, who founded the academy, and everyone would come and sit under Plato's feet, and they would hear his teaching, and they would just watch his brilliance, and they would ask questions, and that was the Socratic method that was sort of perfected and refined by Plato. But then comes along Aristotle, and Aristotle kind of like me, was extremely ADD, couldn't sit still. And so his method of teaching was just to walk around town. It's called the peripatetic method. And he would just walk around town. And if you wanted to learn from Aristotle, you had to follow him because, oops, there goes your teacher. You better just get behind him and hear what he has to say. And so they called his model of teaching the peripatetic method. That is the walking around method of teaching from Aristotle. And it got shortened, sort of a shorthand for all philosophy, how you actually live and execute your life simply became called the walk. Into that comes Paul. I urge you, I want your walk, your philosophy of existence, your execution of daily living. I want it to be, and then he says something incredible, I want it to be worthy. Now, we don't know how else to translate this. The word is axios. It means balanced. It means cut in the middle. It's where we get our word for axis. The earth spins on its axis. It's where we get our word for axe. For those of you who actually chop wood, I buy mine. But an axe, allegedly, cuts wood in the middle. I want your life to be balanced. I want the conduct, and I want your calling to be the same. There needs to be a worthiness there, a balance. It needs to be whole, and it needs to be even to uh, walk worthy of the manner, to, uh, the call to which you have been called. There's the calling, or we might say a better translation, the summons. When the king of kings summons you, you don't negotiate, you answer and you come, but the calling to which you have been called. There is something to which you've been called, not just going to heaven one day when you die. You've been summoned into a thing that he's going to spend the next 15 verses unpacking. You have been called, summoned, directed to come because of this, yes, initial salvation, but you have also been summoned into a thing that turns out is everybody else. See, you do us. 
You do not get to just do you. You do us because the gospel, the really good news, is the great story and the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself. Yes, that's the call. And to that which we were called and to one another. That's why the gospel is such good news. And then he's going to tell us how this new philosophy of life actually looks because it's upside down, inside out, and inverted from the rest of the Greek world at that time and now. He says, you should walk with all humility. That's not thinking of yourself as a wretch or a worm. It's just not thinking of yourself as much. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, which for many of us, that's the hardest thing to do because there's a deep theological term and it goes like this. I love me some me. I am my favorite topic of conversation. I'll meet with some of you and I'll say, but enough about you. Let's talk about what you think about me. And... Because this is what we do. There's a gravity to our depravity that makes us the axis of our universe. No, Paul says, I want you to walk with all humility. In the Greek culture and context, only slaves were said to be humble. Masters were proud and arrogant of their accomplishments, of what they could possibly produce. Paul says, no, I want you to be in all humility and gentleness. This meekness. It says the same idea as in the Old Testament, God's character of chesed, loving kindness, covenant-keeping love, compassion, and mercy. This is how you are to walk around in your world. Notice that all of these have the tendency to be outward-facing. They actually splatter on other people. All humility and gentleness with patience. (laughs) Great suffering. This is the plan. What is God's plan for your life? That you be saved, that you be sanctified, and that you suffer. I don't find that hardly ever in anybody's embroidery template. But that's the plan, that you be saved, that you be sanctified, that you suffer, and yes, that you serve. That you bear up this this idea of patience is that you endure the suffering without an expectation that it's going to change and without feeling entitled that it should. That's the biblical notion of patience. Now, I'm talking to all of you. Since I'm preaching this, I don't have to actually live this myself. But all of you, you got to get way better in this area. And here's the fun one. Bearing with one another in love. (laughs) That's the challenge. And quite candidly, this is the main reason most people walk away from the church, because they just can't bear with all those other people, certainly not in love. Because what is love? Love is merely wanting the highest good of the other. As I look around this room, and I look around the room up on three and down on one, and those of you who I can imagine are watching from home, do you think of the other people in this room that you really sincerely, utterly want the highest good of everyone else in this room? Man, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be like a travel brochure of the coming kingdom? Ding, 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 that's the point. So Paul's already said in Ephesians 1.10, this is to be the foretaste and the prefiguring and the foreshadowing of what the kingdom will actually be. Bearing with one another in love, understanding that yes, there are some people out there that are what we call EGRs, extra grace required. Yeah, and just realize that you are that person for somebody else. You're thinking you're Captain Awesome giving extra grace to other people, not realizing probably that there's a whole lot of folks that are giving you extra grace. Just saying that's happening. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, you have to remember, polypreposition never, ever liked periods. He just keeps stringing things together. But what's really fascinating about this is that we are to be head on a swivel, striving forward, looking for opportunities, Paul says, to maintain the unity, not to make the unity. 
We don't have to create programs. We don't even have to have covered dishes. We have it already. Because the same spirit that indwells you is the same spirit that indwells me. The same cross that redeemed me is the same cross that redeemed you. I don't have to go and create something for unity. We have it already. Now, he's really going to expound on that. The unity of the spirit, that's the spirit of God, in the bond of peace. We don't have to try to manufacture peace. We have it. Our task is to maintain it. There is, and then we're going to get to such a wonderful little refrain. My sense is that Paul had taught them this sort of hymnic, poetic refrain while he was with them in Ephesus for three years. You're going to get seven elements of unity all rooted in the Trinity. It's just this wonderfully symmetrical, beautiful declaration. I'm just going to read through it. It's about the unity. Seven elements of unity all built on Trinity. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, that's Jesus. One faith, that is the content of our confession. All that we believe, all that we hold dear as Christians, the, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, there is God, he exists eternally in three persons and there is one God and Jesus is both God and man and salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's the faith. That belongs to all of us equally. One baptism, this is literally, you were what you were, but you died. When you were baptized, that was your funeral. I was there. I made you bubble. But you were raised to walk in newness of life. And the thing into which you were raised was everybody else, not you doing you. You and I were raised to newness of us doing us. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It's all about our triune Godhead bringing to bear his entirety to us so that we will be a reflection and a resemblance, you might say, of what is the Godhead like? Look around. Look around. All of these things. Now, if you hear this list in verses 1 to 6 and you go, gosh, that sounds like a lot of stuff now. Paul's turning to directives and things that we're supposed to do. It sounds kind of like a scorecard. How am I doing in humility? How am I doing in gentleness? How am I doing in patience? How am I doing in bearing with one another in love and maintaining the bond of peace? If you think that sounds like a scorecard, you're right. And you lose. So this is not about you reading Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, and trying harder to be better. That's called death. This is realizing that it is a scorecard and it's finished. It's completed already. This is why Paul will say 27 times in Ephesians, you are in Christ. Who does Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 sound like? Jesus, not you. But we get to remember that we have been called to that posture, that position. We are in Christ. That's how God views us, even though our walking around lives often stumble and falter and fail. But this is what we have now in the mind of God. We are in Christ. All that humility and patience and gentleness and maintaining the bond of peace. Uh, that's who Jesus is. And we are in Christ. And so, Christian, what, what Paul's doing, oh, I need to sit down. It's parenting. He's holding the crown high above the heads of those Christians and these Christians and saying, this is it. It's yours already. Now rise to meet the crown. That's what we do as parents. That's what we do as pastors. Now verse 7 is an enormous pivot. Paul's been really beating the drum on unity, unity, unity. Now he's going to shift very quickly, and so am I, into verse 7. We're going to see a different emphasis. Same idea, you do us, but it's now going to have a different 
emphasis. Verse 7, but grace was given, past tense, edothe. It means it's already happened. You don't have to try to keep getting it. You don't have to, oh, God, would you please? He's like, done. Ask me something I haven't done yet. Oh, God, would you give peace? Done. Next. Oh, God, would you? Done. Next. Oh, God, would you send your spirit? Done. Next. So you just try to keep coming up with things that he hasn't already done. Good luck with that. He says, grace has been given or was given to each of us. We've been talking about the oneness, the, the body, the molecule, the oneness, the body, the molecule. Now Paul wants to zero in and say, okay, you've been the recipient of a grace of God already. Regardless of how you feel about that, regardless if you like that or want that, it's truth. Each of us, he says, according to the measure of Christ's gift, he who suffered even death on a cross, but at whose name every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, that that name is the one exalted above every other name. According to his gift, that's how he blesses his little brothers and sisters. He doesn't have scraps. He doesn't give you his leftover sunflower seed spittings. The manner of Christ's glory is the same manner with which he blesses and graces and gives to us. Grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is really sort of an amazing passage. He's going to explain it here the best he can in verses 9 and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. There's a lot going on here. I'm going to try to be brief. Paul, because he's an apostle, says, you guys, you guys, you guys. That's not on the Greek. That's the new Eric translation. He goes, you guys, this is that. That thing that's in Psalm 68, it's Jesus. That thing that's in Jeremiah 23, it's Jesus. In Psalm 68, we're told about how when God would go to war on behalf of Israel, when God would destroy an opposing enemy army, all of the, the loot, all of the stuff and the goods, they would be gathered up. And because God had won the victory, God would allow those things to be distributed. Paul says, you guys, it's that. But it's Jesus. He has gone to war, not against the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ninevites and the Philistines and the French. No, against sin and death. Now, what Paul's doing very brilliantly, because remember, chapter 2 is all about Jew and Gentile being one in the Son. Paul's using very intentionally both Greek and Hebraic or Hebrew custom and culture and understanding. On the one hand, that's also a very Roman thing to do when a conquering general returned after a victory that had what's called a triumbuantai, that's the Latin, and a general would walk in and all of his captives would follow behind him. And he would show all the citizens of Rome, this is my victory, look at this, I brought back an ostrich, aren't I awesome? And then he would distribute the gifts that he had captured in his campaign in Germania or wherever, and he would deliver those gifts to whomever he wanted. Paul's using that idea. Jesus is victorious, but not over a people, for people, over sin and death. But Paul's also using this language of ascent to say it's a type. It's sort of like when Moses went up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, he encountered God and he experienced and he communed with God. And what did God send Moses back down with? The law. But this time, Jesus, who has ascended, sent his spirit, not law. He sent spirit to indwell. Oh, not how I would have planned it. People. Not two tablets of stone. He gave us Methodists. 
true. And Presbyterians and Baptists and non-denominational Bible churches. It's us. In other words, we might say God's gift to the church is gifted people. So if you're looking for something, why doesn't God just, you know, help us to win the lottery? Because he did. He sent the third person of the Godhead Trinity to indwell people who didn't deserve it, who were dead and separate from God. Whoa, way better, way bigger. So when Paul says, you guys, I'm an apostle, and I'm telling you, this is that, the stuff that we got a faint flicker of in the Old Testament, Psalm 68, Jeremiah 23, it's Jesus. And we're supposed to be gobsmacked and awestruck at the enormity of what God has done, is doing, and will do in the church, and that even includes us here and now. Well, he's going to get even more specific and particular. Verse 11, and he gave all these different, these five different categories of giftedness. By the way, what does it mean that he descended? Some people think that it just means he became incarnate and died on a cross, maybe. Some people think that he went and preached to the lower demons in the abyss, maybe, cool, rock on. Some people think it means that he emptied Abraham's bosom of the Old Testament, maybe, cool, awesome. Nobody knows for sure. I think it's the third one. Moving on, verse 11. And he gave the apostles... These are the people who are personal witnesses to the resurrection. See, it all hinges on that. Jesus is alive. And there wasn't just one or two or three or four. There were these apostles who were with him, who saw him, knew him, who ate his breakfast, and who saw him die, and who saw him again, who made an even better breakfast, I presume. These apostles had the authority like Old Testament prophets. There were prophets. There were evangelists. I don't mean people on TV who will send you their magic handkerchief. I mean the givers of the gospel, the proclaimers of the great news about what God has done to redeem us to himself and to one another. Those were the evangelists. The shepherds, you might notice that name, that word there is the same word we use for pastor. They're synonymous. Shepherds and teachers. What's really interesting about shepherds and teachers is it's one expression. There's no like, he gave apostles and he gave evangelists and he gave shepherds and he gave teachers. No, 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 it's apostles, evangelists, shepherd teachers. In other words, one of the primary ways that a pastor, a shepherd, is to tend his flock is through the ministry of the word. I've heard it a couple times. You, you sure do talk a lot from the Bible. Why don't you just love the people? Like, that's, ah, that's gross. No, I do love our people, but the primary way that I get to tend the flock is through the ministry of the very word of God, and there's so much of it. Shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I love this word so very, very much, katariso. The purpose of ministers is really to be administers, just first ministers, resourcers, guides. The purpose of ministers is to equip everybody else to do the actual work of ministry. But this word equip is fascinating. It has the idea of setting a broken bone. When Jesus calls his disciples, they are on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee and they are katariso. They are equipping their nets. What does that mean? They can't fish. They're torn, they're worn out, and they're rugged. And so they're having to equip the same word, their nets, so that they will be functional again. Our job largely is to bring people into this burn unit who are beat down, tired. They've been burned in church. They've been burned by the world. They've been hurt by relationships. They've been hurt by circumstances, whatever it might be. And we equip them not just to survive, 
No, 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 no. We mend them. We equip them. We reset their broken bones. We tend their, their net fish-catching capacities, and we unleash them unto ministry. Diakonos, through the dust. We're glad you're here. Welcome. What's God going to do with you? Wait a minute. Hold on. I just need to know where the graham crackers are. Second floor, closet, turn left. But after that, God's got a thing for you to be doing here. It's incredible. The whole purpose of these apostles, evangelists, shepherd, teachers, is to equip everybody else to do the actual work of ministry. That's amazing. Until, okay, good. There's an expiration date. We can finally stop at some point. Yes, yes. Okay, here we go. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or personhood. Oh, okay, so that's when we stop. Some of you remember like the beginning of every school year in the fall, maybe some of you had little marks on your door frames and you would bring up your kid and they would stand next to the door frame and what you didn't know is they'd always cheated. They're like, look at that, I grew six inches, more money please. Which I think, why do you think I'm paying you for growing? I, I, that's not a contract. Anyway, you're gonna keep growing and growing. Paul's essentially saying, hey, here's the high mark. And that, that high mark that you're gonna continue to grow into is... Um, uh, the throne room of God. And so until every single body rises up to that crown like the Son of God himself, no, not unto divinity, please, please be careful, but in every other quality and characteristic, that's what we're doing. Because there will come a day when the God-man literally bodily reigns on the earth. But the church age now is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what that will be like. And so we get to work diligently, eagerly striving forward until every person in the church is raised up to, per, to complete personhood, to mature manhood. That word mature doesn't just mean, well, you, you know, you're starting to get some platinum highlights like me. No, it's teleos. It's completed, perfected, fully baked, done. Stick a fork in my spirit, I'm done. But that's not happened. So we might say it this way. I wrote this little note down. The completion of a Christian comes through community. You can't be who you were redemptively recreated to be all by yourself. Sorry. Sorry, I know for a lot of you that's like not gospel. That's bad news because you would really rather just go off all by yourself and Marlboro man out there with your Bible. It's not God's plan. The summons to which you've been summoned is everybody else. And you have been equipped, mended, reset for somebody else to have that same sort of growth and maturity. That's how long we've got to do this. Until we all reach mature personhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ooh. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Can I just pause for a moment on Ephesians 4.14? If I was the enemy of the church of God, I would do all that I have done this past year to bring division, animosity, distrust, frustration, uncertainty, doubt, where we turn in on one another for whatever reason or not. And this is why I think Paul so carefully, cleverly uses a mixed metaphor. You're like babies. You're like a ship on the sea in a storm. Just, but start over. In Ephesians 1.1, don't you remember how much God loves you and that he has saved you to us? You don't do you. You do us. 
and all of the angsts and all of the tensions that all of us feel, maybe even to the point where you go, gosh, I just don't want to encounter those people who are mad or who are judgy or whatever that causes us to stay away from worship. Maybe God's word to us is saying, no, 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 no. We are called to do us, perhaps at a reasonable distance. Fine, perhaps with what looks to me like an ascot, whatever. We can do that because there are some greater, gooder things that are so much more worth it. Verse 15, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, I wish this was translated better, but they're doing their best. There's no word speaking here. The, 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 the word literally is, rather, truthing in love. If you find yourself loving with no truth, stop it, that's gross. If you find yourself truthing with no love, hey, 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 it's both. We have to truth, it's a verb. But in love, wanting the other's highest good. In other words, when we truth, it's not so that we will be understood, validated, and appreciated. I mean, hypothetically. When we truth, it is for the other's highest good. And so we do it in love for their sake, not just so that I am vindicated and affirmed. Throw that out there. Rather, true thing in love, we are to grow up every way into him who is the head into Christ. It's a strange, another mixed metaphor. The body doesn't usually grow into the head. The body kind of comes from. But Paul's saying, don't you see? It's coming together. All these pieces, all these parts, all these systems, all these organisms are coming together to show what Jesus is and what he's like because he's coming again. From whom, this Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Oh, there's that word again. It is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How do you tell if a church is growing? Because the church is growing. And growing churches grow churches. And the growing the church grows the church. And the growing church grows the growing church. That's what we aim to. Never do we want to normalize you do you. We always want to be we do we or you do us. Let me give you just two very quick implications on this. All these 16 verses, we're going to bang that drum of you do us. First goes like this. And I've said this before. I want to say it again. Make molecules. In other words, resist the urge to atomize and just keep to yourself. You and your Jewish carpenter boss, that's a terrible bumper sticker. Take that off your Hyundai. That's that's embarrassing. Don't do that. No, no, make molecules. Resist the urge to atomize. In the human body, every single human body, you are comprised of 59 elements. And all these elements come together and they make chemicals and they make cells and they make tissues. 59 elements that come together and they make molecules that then begin to make other systems, other whole parts of your body. And then astonishingly, into those 59 elements comes the third member of the Godhead Trinity. And he indwells that one. And that one is an eternal, glorious being, ever increasingly being raised and equipped into the likeness of the Son of God. But when those bundles of spirit indwelled 59 elements come into proximity of other bundles of 59 elements indwelled by God's spirit, something cosmic happens, and it's called church. And it is God's plan, and it doesn't just happen by default. We actually have to work at it. 
It's really amazing. So I've mentioned this several times, but as things in our region begin to loosen and open back up, and as you and I begin to become more comfortable with our surroundings, if someone invites you to lunch, go. Buy their roast beef and cheddar at Arby's. If someone comes up and introduces themselves to you and you go, oh, I've met you for like five years now, just give them grace. Maybe they, it's the mask. Maybe it's, you've got new hair. Maybe it's just a really bad haircut. I don't know. Don't avoid engaging someone just because you think, oh, I don't know their name, but I probably should. That's why we're also taking pictures on the second floor for our directory. By the way, if you haven't had your picture taken yet, now's the time. We want us to be known, to really facilitate that knowing of one another. We pursue one another. We are actually engaged, I said this a couple weeks ago, in spiritual warfare against the schemes of the enemy. Despite all the other reasons we, why we should not be together in love, we get to intentionally do that to make molecules. So I want you to think about, what if the only element in the cosmos was hydrogen? No molecule there. But when hydrogen and helium and carbon and this and this and all these other things come together, you get something incredible. So I want for all of us to be diligent, intentional of pursuing other people who might not live where you live, who might not eat what you eat, who might not even <gasps> vote how you vote, who might not even accessorize their wardrobe like you do. What kind of an amazing molecule might that be? as it equips others to equip others to equip others. What an incredible opportunity we as the church have been given already. Second point, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It's an old tired expression. Maybe you've thought about it. Maybe you've been confused by it, but nowhere is that truer than in the church. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Make no mistake, God redeems individuals. There's no group conversion, but the New Testament knows no unchurched Christian. Save your emails, the thief on the cross. Mm -mm, Jesus hadn't died yet. Mm -mm. The New Testament knows no unchurched Christian. And side note, had the thief on the cross been given the opportunity to you know, like go to church or be on the cross, I still think he would have chosen church. Wasn't an option. The New Testament knows no unchurched Christian. They don't happen. When that happens, the church accomplishes, when these people come together, the church accomplishes things that could never happen if it were just an atomic gathering of individuals. It's a body, Paul says. It's a molecule. All these different ideas that Paul uses. I'm so thankful. I'm so sincerely grateful that that's already happening in spades at Bethel Bible Church, specifically in the downtown campus. It is already. And I know that we can do more. We all walk around with the mentality of you do us. 